Would please turn to the book of Ephesians. I didn't want her to put B up there, but it is going to be 17B. But I will read Ephesians 6, verse 11, and verse, verse 17. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word to our minds, our hearts, our souls, our desires. So Father, I ask You to help me. Help me unfold what Paul is getting at, what he meant when he penned this, or had it penned as he dictated it. What we are to grasp for our lives as individuals and corporately as a church to the glory of Your name and to the salvation of our souls to the sanctification in our lives through our battles to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. If you're a first century soldier, the imagery that Paul has been using here, and you dress for battle, you have your loins girded and you're protected in here from blows, and you have... Your breastplate on, protecting your chest and your midsection and on the back. You have your shoes on with spikes to hold your ground in hand-to-hand combat. You have the shield right there in your hand strapped on your left arm. And you have your helmet securely fastened on your head. And now the enemy comes charging at you. And you don't have your sword. You're doomed. Hand-to-hand combat, you're doomed now. You have nothing to block his sword. And it's a matter of time before his sword pierces something in you that will put you down. Because you have no sword to beat him to that punch. The sword is vital. It's vital for blocking and for defeating the enemy. And Paul's not all about physical battle. He's made that clear. This is a non-physical battle. It's imagery. And his point is that every Christian needs to wield The sword. Because Satan and his gang don't just shoot arrows from a distance. But then they eventually attack. And the lines meet. And hand-to-hand combat ensues. And if you don't have a sword, he'll succeed in killing you. So, if you're a churchgoer, and you have been a professing Christian, let's say for two years, or five years, or ten, or, or thirty years, but you barely know the Bible. That means the Word of God is not a treasure to you. And it may mean Because you are still spiritually dead. But, dear believers, see your treasure? Is the Word your treasure? Then it means, in the midst of your warfare, in the midst of your many battles, in the midst of grief, setbacks, pain, Struggles. If you have the Word of God in your heart and in your mouth, 
and the two-edged sword in your hand, then you should rejoice. Because that means you belong to Jesus. And that means you know you will win the war. Well, because Jesus on the cross won the war for you. You're His. How do you know? Because you have a sword. You have armor. And you're in the battle. And so Paul writes to us here in verse 17 of Ephesians 6. And now you take up the helmet of salvation we saw last week. And the other thing you take up now, right before the battle starts, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so the sword that he's referring to here was about two inches wide. It's two-edged. Both sides are really sharp. And it's only about two feet long. It's not one of those big middle uh, medieval swords and long. It's you fight hand-to-hand combat in the midst of the fray. That's what he has in his mind. It's meant for close battle. And he calls the sword the sword of the Spirit. So you should always pause. You read your Bible. What does it mean, of the Spirit? What he doesn't mean here, which he could mean with that grammar, but he doesn't mean it here. He doesn't mean the sword, which is the Spirit. No. It's not what he means here. Like he meant the helmet, which is salvation. Here he means by of the Spirit, source. He means the sword's source is the Spirit. It is the sword that comes from the Holy Spirit. And the reason that we know that is because he's been, he says, this is what the sword is. Next thing he says, what? It is the Word of God. So take up the sword of the Spirit. That is, take up the Word of God. And that Word of God gets its source from the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word. Now, here, for the word word, which is the Word of God. He uses the Greek word rhema here. He doesn't use the word logos. Both of those are two Greek words for the word word. And there's a lot of overlap. There is overlap between rhema and word. Don't just think inside that word is this big, huge, giant theology. It comes from context. But, normally, rhema is used to have an emphasis on the spoken word. Take up in your lives, in His communities, God's speech, which we're going to get there. He means Scripture. Take up it speaking. So just for a moment, I want you to to hear how another writer in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews, uh, talks about this. But he does here, in Hebrews, he uses the word logos. Hebrews 4, verse 12. He writes, For the Word of God, he means Scripture here, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I think Paul is driving at that. Take up the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. Paul's referring to the rhema of God. He means the Scripture. He means that Scripture is sharp. It cuts. It judges thoughts. And it judges motive and intentions. And so when he says, take it up here, he means take up the Scripture. And probably, particularly meaning, 
And this is not merely individual, but corporately. Speaking. Speak it. In order to speak the truth of God's Word, the Holy Scripture, it must go through your mind. Go ahead, try to say something that doesn't involve your mind. It's impossible. And for that Word of God that you would speak to be saving you and not condemning you, to be sanctifying you, working on you, it must be going through your heart also. Take it up. So the sword of the Spirit is, or means, the Holy Spirit is the source of the Scripture. It means the sword which comes from God the Holy Spirit in the same way that Paul wrote elsewhere. For instance, 2 Timothy 3. Quote, All Scripture, and Paul has in mind, particularly when he says that, the Hebrew Scripture, you call it the Old Testament. He means particularly all of those writings that have been passed down, some over 1,200 years old and some as new as 470 years old. All of that Old Testament, he says, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching. Reproof. No, no, you're wrong. Correction. It's this way, not that. Scripture says, and for training in how you live. In righteousness. So the Scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God. It's the sword. It's the Word that comes from God. The Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed. Outward, through human agents. That's how we got it. Didn't drop out of heaven. It was breathed out through Moses' pen, through Jeremiah's prophecies, through Ezekiel, through David, in caves, and ultimately through Paul, and Peter, and John, and Matthew. Through their minds, their conscious communication to others, all of that is God-breathed. In their situation, that Paul had to get so angry at doctrine that the Judaizers... Professing Christians were coming behind to his churches that he planted, that he had to sit and write his most angry letter to the Galatians. All of that is superintended sovereignly and providentially by God, so that Paul, through his mind, through his affections, and the truth that was given to him, would say through writing exactly what God wanted him to say. And so, like our book that we have been working through here, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It ultimately came by the Holy Spirit who is the source. He was sovereignly and intricately involved in every jot and tittle. He's God. And therefore, He does not err. If He decides to do what I just said, He does it without error. He does it Infallibly. And therefore, Paul and Moses and Peter and Matthew, etc., when they penned what they penned, sinners who do err, did not err. Because they were vessels that the Holy Spirit used, breathed from God. That's why Paul calls it the sword, the Word of God, which has a source from God, the Holy Spirit. Concerning the Scripture, the Apostle Peter himself wrote this about Scripture. This is what it is. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy 
Spirit. That's at the core of Paul's meaning of the words. Take up the sword of the Spirit of God. In other words, which is the Scripture. It's the Word of God. So what I want to do then with the rest of our time is, first again, let's, let's think about this, just the sword a little bit. In other words, think about, ponder the doctrine of the Word of God. As I just said about the inerrant, infallible, written Scripture. Okay, let's think about that word. And then the second thing is, okay then, how do we use that sword that he tells us to take up in the battle? That's where I'm going, right? So first, when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is Holy Scripture, to us now, I mean, if you're standing in Jeremiah's day and listening to him preach for the first time, okay, there it is. That's what I mean. It means this, that God, who has breathed it out and inspired it, He's absolutely in sovereign control of everything. And therefore, the main way, not the only But the main way he is accomplishing goals and purposes that he has is through the Scripture. And so we'll say amen again, because after I read one of his mouthpieces, Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11, Isaiah writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And they do not return up to heaven, to the sky, before all this other stuff happens. They do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout food, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God sends it and it produces. So shall, as that happens, rain and snow, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Just like that. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Thank you. Always. But if you say, wait a minute. What about God's Word? What about the Gospel, which is His Word, the message of Jesus and salvation? Many people hear that and don't get saved. They don't sprout up 30, 60, and 100 fold fruit like Jesus says. They get choked out and they die. So, what do you mean? God always, always accomplishes His purpose. What about the millions of children raised up in evangelical churches who go off to college and by the time they're 23, they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Many by their mouth, others by their life. What do you mean it accomplishes? They heard it all their lives. Well, that is also God's purpose. See, one of God's purposes with His Word is to save and sanctify and mold throughout 
His, her, her, his life. Absolutely. It may not be us. And another purpose of his word is to harden hearts. To harden the hearts of the rebellious as Jesus himself said. Why do you speak like that? They're not getting it. Come on, man. Boil it down. Real simple stuff. And he says, I speak in those stories, those parables for the very purpose that they will hear, but they will not understand. As Paul would write, I could forget 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. One of the Corinthians. The Word of God is like a sacrificial offering to Jesus Christ. And it goes up into God's nostrils. He's taking Old Testament language. And to some, where that word is hitting is death. Smell of death to death. Hardening of hearts. And to others, life to life. But don't be God is always accomplishing His purposes. So the grace of being raised in a Christian family, the grace of being in church this morning, is that you can hear the Hebrew writer throughout his letter saying to the church, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. the Word do it, saving, sanctifying, purifying Word. This first part of this glorious sword. And secondly, is very connected to that. The Scripture is clear. What God uses in order to bring sinner X, Y, and Z to Himself, save Him forever, is the Word of God. It's what He does it with. Here's Paul. The Gospel. Which he goes on to lay out there. That's Romans 1. He just goes to lay it out. The Gospel. The message. The good news of Jesus Christ. That Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the instrument. That's why Paul will go on to write later on in Romans in chapter 10. You know it well. How then will they call upon Him? Save me! They won't. I mean, how will they call upon Him in whom they've never heard? Okay, this God, they've got to hear it. They've got to hear the Word of God. The Gospel of Christ. How will they call upon Him in whom they've not, excuse me, believed? Let's get His logic correct here. And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear without someone telling them? Preaching. They preach it. The Word is heard. Then it's believed. And it's evident they call upon him. Is that you? It happened through the Word of God. The Gospel. James says the same thing, but extremely concisely this way in James 1. Of God's own will, He brought us forth. In other words, saved us. Caused us to be born again. Of God's own will, His will, He brought us forth by the Word of of truth. And Peter says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, how? What was the instrument? You have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Okay. That's the way he saves. I don't... I mean, sometimes it's... Just, isn't this obvious, what I'm going to say? Therefore, we don't need to help God out by shaving off the rough edges of Holy Scripture. 
We, we don't need to get... If I were just a more skilled speaker, then more people would come to Jesus. No. Just be clear. With the Word of God. Not only does the Word save, but thirdly, it is the instrument by which God is constantly doing surgery on His children. By which He is working in us who believe. By using the Word to expose the intentions and the sin of our hearts and restoring us again and again. He uses it to cut and to wound and to heal and to hug. The Word of God is constantly yanking believers back to spiritual sanity. The Word of God is constantly holding up right versus wrong, good versus evil, holy versus unholy. And it's turning born-again people again and again to repentance and to worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Word. It revives again and again. The psalmist, Psalm 19, I love Psalm 19. I would love to just quote it all, but I'm not. Sweet and honey, isn't it? says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible, all about the Word of God, there's one verse. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. You ever felt like that? (laughs) Then you cry out, Give me life according to Your Word. Or verses 15 and 51. This is my comfort in my affliction. Have you ever been so beaten up, down, can't get your head off the floor? This is my comfort in my affliction. That your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me. But I do not turn away from your word. It's your answer. If you're in a state of needing to be revived, the word is your answer. And it might take three months going to it. I don't know, but it is your answer. When we feel spiritually dry, we are to pray and ask our Father to restore us through His Word. But I want to hear from God. It is amazing. My background is charismatic slash Pentecostal. And I still take the numbers of those values with me in my life. But when we say, I want to hear from God, and the Bible's right over there, and we don't pick it up, we're deceived. And finally, I don't know if it's separate, but it's connected. Let me just say it this way. The Word of God, the Scripture, is the gasoline. Your car will run on fumes for a little bit. And then it won't run anymore. It won't run without gasoline. And your life, your profession of faith, will not run without the gasoline, which is the Word of God. It's the gasoline to your Christian walk. 
Walking by the Holy Spirit is ultimately in the long run impossible without walking by His, the Spirit's Word. It is the gasoline to walk with Him as opposed to walking unrepentantly with your flesh. Sinful nature that we all still have. The Word of God is the power. Why? Aren't we to walk by faith? Why are you saying walk by the Word? Well, because faith comes and comes and comes, according to Paul in Romans 10. Again and again, faith comes by the Word of God. Hearing of the Word. Faith always has an object and it is God. But if God were silent, what would we ever trust Him for? He isn't silent, He is spoken. Therefore, faith is revived as that object which is to be trusted, His very Word, is constantly put before us. So, the Word of God, in error, infallible, it is that which God uses to accomplish His purposes. It is the Word that saves people from eternal damnation to be placed into Christ Jesus. And it is His same Word that goes on sanctifying those who belong to Him. It is the very gasoline of our daily Christian walk. This, right there, that's the sword. That's the sword that in our passage now, we are called to pick up We're in a battle. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Paul is saying to the church, as to the churches, defend yourselves against the enemy with the Word, with the rhema of God, the Word, Scripture, spoken. So, first, there's got to mean, with the battle imagery, one of the uses of the sword, we've seen all the other stuff, has been defensive. And there's a use of the sword, there's an offensive, we'll get there, but there's a use of the sword that is defensive. <laughs> Okay? You got to block. And so that is at the core of what Paul is saying. The enemy is constantly deceiving, deceiving and scheming, according to Paul. He's throwing certain temptations and certain life situations and experiences. Kill you, your soul, your walk. That's what he's after. Take up the sword and defend against that by ingesting, eating, being filled with the Word so you can fight your sinful nature. You can fight demonic powers and deceptions. Now, what greater example of how we human beings who love God are to do that? Yes, Serge knows exactly where I'm going. What greater example can we possibly get than God, the eternal Son, who became truly human and modeled it? So, you can go to Luke or you can go to Matthew. I'm going to read from Matthew. I'm going to read every word of this encounter. Because that's why it's there. doesn't need a lot of commentary. And it is there, firstly, because it's true. And it's historical. And we need to see that about Christ and His humanity. But it's also there for all of us to look at the only human being 
who never did sin and never had a sin nature, but very human in every way like you and me except for the sin. How would he fight temptation? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, not eating any food for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Six hours, I'm about ready to lose it. And the tempter, clearly Satan, the devil here, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become a loaf of bread, or loaves of bread. But, Jesus answered, It is written. He didn't say, I am the Word of God, which is true. He came to be one of us, teach us how to be human beings and live to God. And He will do it forever as our champion. It is written. He knows exactly where it's written and He has it memorized. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He didn't go have a scroll with Him. Where the heck was that? He knew it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, Jesus. Now watch, Satan can play this game. Because it is written. You got it? Oh, Jesus, you want to play the Bible game? I'll play the Bible game with you. It is written. And Satan quotes Psalm 91. He, go ahead and do it, because Jesus, if you're the Son of God, if that's really true, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bury you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows Scripture. He knows how to use it wrongly to deceive you, to tempt you, to sin. There are a lot of free people today in the evangelical church from old time and even thus biblically wrong in some areas, fundamentalism. We're free! We can drink alcohol! Yeah, you can. So go hang out with all kinds of non-Christians and Christians. And don't just drink, but get hard liquor and drink five or six shots because you're free. Avoid texts that say those who are practicing drunkenness will not inherit the kingdom of God. He can play it. Don't let him deceive you. Well, Jesus responded. There's a scripture. So Jesus said to him in response to Satan, quote, scripture from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus didn't say, I don't believe Psalm 91. He says, the way you want me to use that would be breaking this clear text about putting God to the test by leaping off. 
And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, get out of here. Satan, be gone. Satan, because it is written in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.13 You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. So if the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity in His incarnation becoming human was dependent on the Bible, the Scripture, the sword, which is the Word of God, in His very battle against temptation and sin, then how much more are we weak sinners to be desperately in need of taking up the Word of God every day and speaking it through temptation and to slippery Scripture twisting. We must obey Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. No wonder the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Listen to him. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. But notice as we have read the story of Jesus, Jesus in the wilderness. He wielded the sword. But not haphazardly. He wielded the sword against specific attacks. Jesus turned this stone into bread if you're the Son of God. God created the heavens and the earth. Huh? What does it have to do with that? Be a stretch right there. It's not what he did. He responded to with text that he really needed in that moment. With relevant passages that are directed at the enemy's attack on you right then. And that's how we are to do battle with the sword of the Spirit. Not just swing it haphazardly in purposelessly. So what is your temptation at any given moment? Sexual thoughts? Sexual sin? Lying? Stealing? Gossip? A sinful kind of hatred toward another? Unforgiveness? which is very connected to bitterness growing, the forsaking of the assembly of Christians together. This is the habit of some. Stealing from God. On and on. What is the particular temptation? Thoughts coming in your head like to Jesus. And what are you doing? You need Scripture. You need the sword. So just give me two examples. Say, for, for instance, very practically, the attack of anxiety over what tomorrow may bring concerning issue A, B, whatever that is, it begins to just overwhelm you. And Satan is in your ear. Worry. Go ahead and worry. Be anxious. 
respect your marriage, every relationship you've got, just be overcome by it. Let those butterflies continue in your stomach, just gnawing at you over that situation. Take up the sword. 1 Peter 5.7 Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares. He really cares for you. Do you belong to Christ? Then God has adopted you willingly, purposefully from the foundation of the world by your very name. He had you in mind when Jesus went to the cross. And so he says, cast those anxieties given to me. Throw them on me. Because I, your Father, care for you. And he knows every contour of every thought and worry and situation better than you do. And he still says, cast them. I've got you. If that's enough, then you pull out Matthew chapter 6 and you meditate on Jesus' words ultimately to you. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life. I mean the very basics of your life, even. What you will eat. What you will drink. Nor about your body. What you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? If you're a Christian and you've been awakened to eternal life, it is. And so he says, but instead, seek. Okay, you've got to be on the lookout. That's an activity now. Seek first before you eat the kingdom of God in His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as I, the Sovereign One, taking care of you, see need. Alright, one more example. Covetousness. Just sin with it. It's driving me. Whatever that may be in that covetousness, it just grows in you. Pull out the sword of Philippians 4, 11-13. And hear the God-breathed word through the man, the Apostle Paul. I have learned in whatever situation I am. I've learned this. To be content. Watch what he says. Here's Paul. Here's his Christ- this is what he thinks Christianity is. I know something now. I know how. To experience something now. He's, I know how to be brought low. Smashed. I know the temptation of anxiety, of money. It's, it's at the core of what he's talking about. And needs being met here in Philippians 4. I know to be absolutely brought low. I know how to do it. And... I also know, because here's another danger, how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret. The secret of facing in my circumstantial life, facing plenty an abundance of money and bank account and food and house and home and everything. I've learned, there's a secret I've learned to face that in my life. 
And I've learned the secret of also facing hunger. Where am I going to get food? I've learned the secret of an abundance and of need. What's the secret? It's one of the most famous little lines in all the New Testament for Christians. I can do all things through Him, Christ, who strengthens me. That's the sword of the Spirit. Use it. That's defensive. There is also the ongoing offense of the Word of God in the life of the church. It is the offensive weapon. Not merely attacking temptations and stuff in our individual lives, but the sword of the Spirit. Take it up clearly, because Paul's a very communal guy. It includes the spiritual discipline of preaching and teaching in the local congregation. It is the steady communal diet of the Word of God, which is part of taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is why the New Testament instructs the preaching of the Word in the life of the church as central and primary. When Paul wrote Ephesians 6, got to get this, these members of Ephesians, and if it's to the other churches, of those different churches in Asia Minor, all the members did not have a Bible like you and I do, sitting on their nightstand to wake up in the morning and to read it. It's too expensive. There are numbers of Bibles within the churches, meaning the scrolls, the Hebrew Scriptures translated over into Greek and Septuagint, that, that they're using, and they read it to each other. But they don't have it sitting on their nightstand. They have all the Old Testament. They probably have some of Paul's other letters by this time. They probably have, because Luke is not quite finished, they probably have numbers of parchments of Jesus' sayings and Jesus' narratives and and by memory, etc. That's what they got. And this is why there would be long, extended Bible readings in their regular church gatherings. The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. And let me say this. It is clearly true today, 2017, at least in the American church, but it was also true during Paul's very lifetime that Satan, he was out immediately in the planting of the churches, he was out to diminish and to downplay preaching the Word. I didn't say he was out to downplay preaching. He's all for that. I didn't say he was out in the first century to downplay public speaking in the church. I didn't say that. I didn't say he was out to downplay preaching based upon the Word. I said he was out to downplay preaching the Word. And that's why Paul warned Timothy about this danger. This subtle, inevitable... Paul's clear on this. It is inevitable. It's coming. This subtle demonic attack in 2 Timothy 4. He says this to Timothy in verses 3 and 4. Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound or healthy teaching. But instead, 
having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. They'll wander off into myths and all kinds of other religious stuff. And so that's why Paul responds in this to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, give them what they want. He doesn't say that, does he? It's not at all what Paul says. See, I'm turning the logic around. I'm going to go back to what he said right before. Because the logic is clear. Here is Paul's flow in 2 Timothy 4, 1-4. Because of the inevitable temptation for churchgoers to want their ears tickled, and there will be those who will say, we will be that for you. Therefore, Timothy, I charge you, preach the Word. That's the simple sentence. That's what he says. Now, of course, I stripped away all the complexity of the sentence that Paul has to grow. Because I didn't want you to get lost. This is what I charge you to do. Preach the Word. But the complexity is God-breathed through an animated soul. The Apostle Paul's Think about it when you're teaching your children as they're growing up and you really want to drive some stuff home. You might have very complex sentences to just before you even get to the punchline about how dire that they hear what you're saying is and what is at stake. And that's what Paul does. So I'll read it now fully. Therefore, Timothy, Trust me, it's coming. It's everywhere. I charge you. Ooh, I want you to make Timothy. You better get it. I love you, Timothy. You're like a son to me, but you better get this. I'm going to be dead, and you better get this. I'm charging you right now in the presence of God. Timothy, when you read this now, God's in that room with you. You better hear it, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead someday. Timothy, what I am about to say to you has to do with people's eternal salvation and eternal damnation. He will judge the living and the dead. By His appearing, I charge you, And His kingdom. Preach. The Word. Be ready in season and out of season. To reprove. People might not like you for it. To rebuke. They will really not like you for it. And to encourage. Do it with complete Patience and teaching. That's the sword of the Spirit. The idea of evangelism apart from the ministry of the Word in the local church, ultimately, where you lead converts into Christ's body. The idea of that, without the sword of the Spirit, Coming to new converts through preaching and teaching, they will not endure to the end so as to be saved. Instead, the seed of the gospel would seem to give some kind of a response. It will be choked out by the weeds, the cares of the world, and of having babies. And the lust for other things. Those are Jesus' words. And there's a phenomenon in church history. And that is, 
The more the Word of God is absent in its clarity of public reading and preaching and teaching, the more the visible church will collect among itself more and more non-converted people. This is what happened during the Middle Ages when slowly the church replaced the preaching of the Word with the ritual of the Mass and the high ritual of Latin liturgy, liturgy, which almost nobody in Europe knew unless they were highly educated at the university. They never read Paul. And if he was ever read in the church, they didn't understand what was even being said. And then the Reformation happened. And the reforming of the church happened foundationally because the Scriptures were rediscovered. The Scriptures were rediscovered. Under God's sovereign providence. And the printing press had just come about a couple of decades earlier. And one of the main things the reformers were about. When Martin Luther finally got, had to go hide out at the castle. What he did for a year. I don't even know how did he do that in a year. With Hebrew and Greek. And translated the entire Bible into German. Street language. So that they could actually read it. And this was happening throughout Europe. It's happening in Britain. Being translated into English. So get the Bible into people's hands. But it was mainly sustained then through that Bible getting into the hands and the ongoing exposition of preaching, teaching, expository preaching through many reformers throughout the continent and Britain. Two you know. Martin Luther, John Calvin. I mean, Calvin's Institute, and that dirty word called Calvin. Okay, look, what John Calvin did for decades as a pastor in Geneva was about four times a week he's working through different books of the Bible. And that's what he did for decades. He would go verse by verse preaching through the Word. And in our day, the seeker-sensitive model of churches has been an attack on preaching the Word. It downplays the exposition of the Word itself through its philosophy of preaching. It replaces exposition of the Word with topical, short sermons and topics derived from the felt needs of the people in the culture. They're short, they're polished, they're entertaining topics about how to get along in life. Don't be gullible to this. Stand firm by taking up the sword of the Spirit. Which is the Word of God. Now, I run out of time. So I'm going to shotgun you for two minutes. It means go on. Know the Word. Know it. You can't use it effectively unless you know it well. How? Read it. Read it. So over 500 years we've had the printing press. They're cheap. You have them in your homes. You read it. I can't read. I'm dyslexic. I say that because I'm dyslexic. But I can read. Train myself better. And we all have different levels of that. So we live in a day and an age, and it's God's sovereign gift and promise. You can go buy the Bible audibly for like $22. I know a really good one, in my opinion. Wonderful to listen to. And you can just plug in your little phone and have someone read it to you. I don't know what blind people used to have to pay people. Come read me. Okay? Man, with audible. Read the Word. So read it. And study it. 
Read it slowly. Think about it in its context. Come to groups. Come to the inductive Bible study group on Saturdays. See, if I were to say, hey, you want to learn to fish? See, I don't want you to hear. If you've never been here, don't think this. Come on Saturday. We'll teach you to fish. And you've got this idea. We're into my study and i got a big board. And here's five little rules on how to hook your bait. I know nothing about fishing. And, and how to cast. That's not, no, 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 you got it wrong. Teach you to fish. Meet me down over at the marina here in Redondo Beach. We're going to get on a boat. We're just going to go do it. And we do it every week. For you know you're going to fish. That's what inductive Bible study is. So study it. Think about it. And prayerfully and devotionally meditate upon it. Know it. And then, you know what you're going through? Oh gosh, I need. I need a promise. I need a command. I need to be able to tack when I'm wrestling through. And do it. Hide the word in your heart so that you might not sin. Against him. And I close with this. In other words, take up the sword of the Spirit is another way of saying, be a Psalm 1 person. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law, he or she meditates day and night. And thus what? They are like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that they do, they prosper. But the wicked, that is the unconverted, are not so. Oh, Father, help each and every one of us souls in here to hunger and to thirst for the pure milk of Your Word to our souls. Daily, alone and in community, to the glory of Jesus and to the victory that He is working through us in battle.